Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I am your host, Daniel, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and mentorship. So check it out at tkex.org. Got a special guest today, Mitchell Sarkis. He is a leading researcher in the world of behavior change, implementation science, value-based healthcare, and plenty of topics in regards to how we can better make the public healthcare system work for us. So I'm keen to dive into some of his research, some of his story, as well as some of his experience as a practicing physiotherapist, and here to learn a little bit about implementation science. So super excited to have you here, Mitch. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for having me, Daniel. So for those who don't know you, what is your story? You summarized it a little bit there. So I I worked for a number of years as a physiotherapist, so practicing clinically. I was mostly based, well, almost entirely based in the hospital setting. Um, so both public and private hospitals. I worked in New South Wales, Victoria, New Zealand. So I got around the place a little bit, which is something you can do with a physiotherapy degree, fortunately. And I decided fairly on in my clinical work that uh, there was a lot of things that I thought could be improved, but I couldn't improve them as a clinician. And so I got quite interested in research. And so I completed a PhD at Monash University down in Melbourne. And I'm now working at the Centre for Healthcare Resilience and Implementation Science in the Institute of Health Innovation, uh, and that's now part of Macquarie University. So I've been practicing clinically for about seven years and doing research for about five or six years. Awesome. So you were practicing in a, in a hospital setting and in, in a number of different hospital settings. So I'm curious to, to hear what your experience was like practicing as a, as a physio. And then also you mentioned that some of the things were outside of your control as a individual clinician, and you were interested then in stepping into the research world. So tell us a bit about your journey there. Yeah, of course. So I, my understanding is probably a lot of your audience uh, might sort of be more based in, in primary care or in the sort of community setting in, in clinics. So I'll sort of try and explain how I guess I think the hospital system sort of differs from that sort of setting. Although I did work in an outpatient sort of musculoskeletal clinic as part of one of the hospitals I worked at, most of my experience has been in an inpatient setting. So often as a graduate in the hospital setting, you do a lot of time in sort of general medical and surgical wards. A lot of the work that you do as a physio in that space is really about getting people up and mobilizing post-surgery, but also people who've been admitted for uh, more medical conditions, but for whatever reason, they're having trouble mobilizing, but also we look at people's respiratory functions and people are sometimes admitted with uh, you know, exacerbation of COPD or pneumonia or something like that. And, and so we also do a little bit of work trying to make sure people's breathing uh, stays as best as it can while they're in the hospital. And then there's also, I guess, longer term rehabilitation goals for a lot of people. So I also worked in intensive care unit for a little bit. And again, that, that focused quite a bit on people's respiratory function. I... Enjoyed it for a few years, but there's a lot of um, a lot of mucus and phlegm involved in uh, in people who are needing respirators to breathe, and I got a little bit grossed out by that. So I, I sort of moved back towards the orthopedic sort of settings. So I worked in an orthopedic ward, mostly with people after they've had um, hip and knee replacements, but also you know we we had ACLs, you know fractures, all that type of thing. And then my last few years, I worked in an inpatient rehabilitation ward. So we saw a lot more people who were, you know, a few weeks or even months down the track from a stroke. Uh, and so doing a lot of work about 
reteaching gait and, and get people walking again, but also upper limb function. And then the very last few years that I worked uh, was in an inpatient mental health ward. So this was a, a psychiatric ward, actually a number of wards. So one was specifically older people. So people over 65 who admitted with a psychiatric condition, but then also a younger ward, people between sort of the ages of 25 and 65. And that was quite interesting because it's a space that I think physios haven't historically spent a lot of time in. There's a bit of exercise physiology, a bit of occupational therapy in those areas, but I think very few physios are delving into mental health at the moment. And it's a big sort of area to that we can we can make a big difference in. So the second part of your your question there around what I started to notice as as problems that that were hard to fix as a clinician and I must admit hard to fix as a researcher as well. Now the care in Australian hospitals is, is generally exceptional, but there is a problem with unwarranted care, unwarranted variation in care. And we see this everywhere, you know, in health internationally. One of the sort of big ones that comes to mind is in primary care with, with general practitioners ordering radiological imaging for, you know, non-specific lower back pain for people who don't sort of have any red flags or any indications that, that they do need radiological imaging. You know, there's other issues around physios and other therapists relying on more passive therapies. But I think the implications of these sorts of issues around unwarranted variation really become pronounced in the hospital because you're starting to talk about, you know, surgeries and high risks of iatrogenic harm. So there's not really, everything we, we do can't be based on RCTs, but you do have to consider the I guess the weight or the proportion of information within your decision-making. So the strength of evidence required to warrant certain interventions really should be proportional to their potential for harm, uh, likelihood of benefit and, and the underlying costs. For example, there's, there's still a lot of spinal fusion surgeries going on for people who, who don't necessarily have an underlying pathology warranting that or who don't have specific neurological symptoms warranting that. So it's, it's surgery to, to treat pain, which is not the direction of treatment that the evidence base is, is indicating we should be going down. So there were big issues that as a physio in the hospital, you couldn't really address. So I was quite interested in saying, okay, how can we sort of improve people's knowledge base to improve these areas of care? It's really interesting and it's interesting how there might be some lack of control as a practitioner in that setting. What were some of those challenges as a clinician when you saw perhaps some of these treatments that were not really warranted for patients that you were seeing? What was it like and, and what were some of those barriers as a clinician in that setting? Yeah, look, it, it's, it's quite difficult, I guess, to, to see somebody day one, two or three after they've had fairly major surgeries. So something like, I mean, the spinal fusions are a great example. You know, they've, they've come up recently in the Choosing Wisely Australia campaigns as, as something that, you know, unless there's an underlying pathology that warrants it or unless there's some quite specific neurological conditions, then it's probably not a good treatment option for simple back pain. And so it was quite difficult to see people you coming out of these surgeries and, and talking about their journeys leading up to surgery, and you could sort of see the trajectory unfolding in front of them. So they might present to a primary care practitioner who makes the decision to refer them on to some radiological imaging. And, you know, it's at that point you can start to see people really thinking about their pain in, in a really mechanical sort of paradigm you know there's there's something misplaced or or there's, there's you know something mechanically going wrong in my spine for example and that that's what's causing the pain and we know from from more recent pain science that you can't really necessarily pinpoint you know an underlying mechanical problem to something like back pain and so you could see people sort of ending up down these treatment pathways that eventually led to 
one invasive procedure, surgery, something which, which can have complications and is also very expensive and, and time-consuming for the person to, to be involved with. And, and I guess feeling quite sceptical about whether that person was going to have their pain resolved by that surgery in the long term. So it's quite, quite hard to watch when you, you sort of see things that you've been taught as an undergraduate at university that the evidence is pointing towards a different treatment direction, but there is still these instances where practice does not align with evidence. It must have been really difficult to, to sit with that. You wouldn't have the power to, to influence that patient's story and journey. And uh, in my mind, uh, I'm thinking like, what if, like, what if they wouldn't have had that scan initially? What if there was something different along their journey? Did you, did you share some of those kind of thoughts as you were treating these, these people? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that was something that came to mind is, you know, you, you're talking to someone about, about their story and you think, you know, at, at various points of time in, in their journey to, to end up in the hospital, you kind of think, okay, maybe if, if you'd sort of been referred to somebody who had a better understanding of the pain science or someone who, who was able to explain the complex mechanisms behind pain, it could have potentially avoided going down that treatment pathway. It's sort of easier to look at in retrospect, though, of course, and, and it's sort of by no means, you know, a critique of, of those clinicians along the way. You know, most people are trying to do the best thing by their patients, but, you know, we, we do have this new evidence base around how to manage musculoskeletal conditions, particularly those resulting in chronic pain. And it's still taking quite a few years for that to get translated into practice. And with the lots of research coming out now, qualitative research on the, the harms, the iatrogenic effect of words, the narratives that people have, it makes sense that in our culture, we want some answers and some quick fixes and to something as complex as the experience of pain it, it's easy for people to latch on to as you said that pathoanatomical explanation that something is misplaced or malaligned or there's something inside that is needs to be fixed like the body as machine kind of analogy so i think it's a multifactorial problem and maybe we need to attack it from different issues different perspectives rather yeah, I agree. I mean, look, the power of narratives can't be understated. And that narrative, you know, it intuitively makes sense. And, and it, it does for, for short-term, short-term traumatic injuries that give you pain. It's a very good mechanism to avoid making that injury worse. You know, you, you roll your ankle, you immediately, you know, don't want to keep running on it. And, you know, that's great in the short term, but in the long term, it's, it can be harmful. Absolutely. And it's, it's really, really difficult for changing that entire culture and trajectory of the way that we treat people experiencing pain. So we'll definitely be diving into into that one. I wanted to, to hear what brought you into then research? And what, what were your areas of, of, of interest and passion? Yeah, so I suppose, in a nutshell, I'm passionate about quite applied research. So I guess what you call applied health services research and really looking at things that, that practically improve the health system. There's a lot of uh, research that goes on, which, which needs to be done, you know, that's uh, more uh, basic science and, and what interventions work where, but I'm sort of at the more applied end of the spectrum. And so really trying to understand how to change health policy and practice for the better. So you know, if we go back about 30 years to the kind of evidence-based medicine revolution that really evolved in the, in the 1990s, it brought a renewed focus on building that basic sort of evidence base to support what we do in health and what we do in medicine, rather than relying on expert opinion and existing practices and, you know, more sort of simplified biomechanical theories. And for the most part, that has been fantastic. So we've got this, 
you know, very large knowledge base of, of medicine and of what works in, in medicine and healthcare generally. But it has, it's a big knowledge base. So we, we do have hundreds of thousands of articles published in medical journals every year. So it's, it's hard to sort of keep track of. And the intuitive, I suppose, assumption was that that knowledge foundation would fairly easily translate into improved care, which it has in many cases, but there's a lot of evidence to indicate that around 30% on average of, of care delivered, not only in Australia, but it's, it's a similar number internationally, could be considered unwarranted. And about another 10% results in patient harm. So there has been a new field of research that has sprung up specifically focusing on translating all this knowledge that we have, this evidence, into policy and practice. And that field is known as implementation science. And that's where I spend a lot of my time at the moment. And given my background, I do a lot of this work in the allied health professions. So physio, uh, exercise physiology, occupational therapy, speech pathology, dietetics, social work, all, all those all those professions and also within the, the center that I work in, we, we take a complex systems perspective. So we try to recognize that the characteristics of our health system have emerged or, or are emergent from really like an infinitely complex interactions between people and the organizations they work for and broader cultural social norms you mentioned before narratives as well so we don't sort of take a, a linear perspective when we trying to understand how to improve practice it's not so one, much a reductionistic kind of cause effect it's not like we can suddenly change one factor and then everything will be fixed exactly i mean it's somewhat controversial in some circles but you know it's this idea that you cannot necessarily close the system um, in some ways it's, it's always an open system and things are very contingent so you don't necessarily as you said you can't reduce what are often complex interventions in healthcare to their isolated form in the real world maybe in a laboratory maybe with pharmacological interventions but often not for more complex interventions, which is often the space that we play in in allied health. Can't separate the context of the intervention for that person then to also interplay with the so many other factors, patient-therapist relationship. What are some of those, the factors involved that you would analyze or take into consideration using complex systems theory? Well, it, it, it depends on it depends on the area that you're looking at. So a lot of the work that we do is, is in sort of large programs and policies and, and organisational change. Um, there's a lot of work that has been done on individual behaviour change on sort of the part of clinicians. Um, but I suppose that a lot of the things we look at from particularly an organisational perspective is you know, the importance of buy-in from institutional leaders. So that's not necessarily your, you know, your CEO of the organisation, but often it's, it's your clinical leaders. It's people who are respected in, in a particular area, uh, making sure they're on board with, with any change that, that you're wanting to introduce. You know, there's always the issue of resourcing that comes up. You know, you ask people to, to change their practice, but does the new way of practicing still generate uh, income for businesses? And, and also, does it, is it somehow resourced within the organisation? So perhaps a new way of working requires different kind of infrastructure or even specific equipment that could be quite expensive, for example. You've got to think about those contextual things as well. There's also the relationships between clinicians and patients. So it's not a simple matter of clinicians making treatment decisions for patients. Patients are also involved in their own treatment decision-making. And so 
you know, it's it's another sort of factor to con- to consider. So there's a huge number of factors that that you can look at that you need to sort of keep in mind when you're trying to change practice. It's not always as simple as throwing somebody into a education workshop and teaching them what the new guidelines are because when they go back into practice back into the real world how do you actually sort of operationalize that looks very different to to those guidelines word for word absolutely and there's like 10 questions in my mind right now as to where to where to start when it comes to those things so i'm gonna try and pick one so what i'm hearing is there's a lot of things that influence clinical practice and it's very difficult to make a quick change because we can't separate the the say a new for instance a new form of therapy they clinicians would need to have some first of all buy-in and the clinical leaders would be the influencers in terms of behavior change if we see our seniors also applying some new interventions or new approaches it would make it much easier for the juniors or everyone else or colleagues around to then also practice that way. Then there needs to be enough resources for that. And that might be, for example, exercise equipment. If that was a new kind of therapeutic approach for someone, especially in a musculoskeletal orthopedic setting. And then that way of practicing needs to make income for the business. And are we talking as well, this is the same for both hospital, so both public and private settings, or would this be mostly for, for public? That's a good question at the end. Um, you know, the hospitals in Australia are funded based on activity. So they're funded based on the services they deliver, I suppose, rather than, say, the outcomes they deliver or like a pre-specified amount that people expect this hospital to require. So it's really more based on uh, their, I suppose a simple way of putting it is their throughput. So there are income considerations for both public and private hospitals to consider. And then I guess once you get into the the real specifics around, you know, different um, departments you know, not only within the allied health professions, but between nursing and medicine and allied health and different specialties, there's often a lot of competition for resources. And so it can be quite complex for, I think particularly for allied health departments to make a business case for models of care that are, you know, more evidence-based particularly new sort of chronic disease models of care, because it's so hard to generate, I suppose, economic arguments for them sometimes. Often they're costly, costly to deliver. If we're thinking about a, an exercise program for knee and hip osteoarthritis, for example, instead of surgery, it requires somewhat of an initial investment to have those those staff members dedicated to helping people exercise and manage their arthritis as a chronic condition, which if you don't know, you know, what the exact payoff is going to be for that investment, it can be a hard sell to make uh, within a hospital. But in recent years, that is getting better. So particularly in New South Wales, there, there are a lot of large programs going on currently that are trying to change models of care to orient away from traditional hospital activity like hosp- um, like a surgery and looking more towards um, chronic disease management. It sounds like it's looking more towards the long-term implications of certain services that are delivered. But yes, you're if people are being remunerated for the number of services versus the outcomes, that would be a a difficult sell. And there would be perhaps some short-term costs involved. So it would be difficult to then get the buy-in from all stakeholders, as well as perhaps some clinical leaders in there who might not have as much experience in delivering that. So there's, so there's so many different layers involved in, in change. Yeah. And you, you sort of mentioned it earlier with, 
the clinical leaders. So you often need, I suppose, like clinical champions or, you know, another term that gets thrown around is, is opinion leaders or, or knowledge brokers who have a lot of buy-in within their clinical community or within the organisation that they work at. And sometimes these, these individuals can really get things done within a hospital, within an organisation or, or within a sort of network of clinicians. Um, so, you know, for example, we, we have been working on a study for a few years now looking at knowledge brokering for allied health manager decision-making within, within hospitals. And some of the early evidence that is coming out of this study is a um, large randomised control trial is indicating that really we need to be thinking about having these people internal to an organisation, not external to an organisation. So, for example, the, the study we ran, we, we sort of employed a knowledge broker to go into the hospitals and, and try and help these managers with sort of complex decision-making but we found that even though they were sort of quite experienced clinicians and they had a research background, this is the knowledge broker, they didn't have the internal knowledge that was required within that organisation to make change. So it can be quite beneficial to really identify those people who are already considered leaders within an organisation or an area of practice and sort of leverage their existing relationships and networks and knowledge rather than, I suppose, a, a more external or sort of top-down approach. That seems to be the preliminary evidence that's coming out of this area of work. We see that now with some private clinics. So I had a, a roundtable, and this will be up as well, in our podcast with Dave Moen, Dave Renfrew, and Luke Postlethwaite, so clinic owners who are trying to apply some of these concepts in the private healthcare setting and having that almost apprenticeship or mentorship. So having new grads coming into the organization and, and learning from the group, the in-group that was, that seems to be the most effective for so many reasons. So I can see the parallels where we'd need to, rather than go top down, perhaps go bottom up and see how the changes can be made within an organization rather than employ someone else or get an external PD course and expect major changes? I couldn't agree with you more, Daniel. So we, we have a nice paper around how health professionals prioritise areas of clinical practice for evidence implementation. I think you, you and I spoke about this a, a little while ago, but the reasons that people decide to want to change their practice or, or I guess the areas that they want to change practice in are not always the reasons or the areas that researchers or policymakers or, or managers might have. So usually, say from my perspective, like closing gaps between guideline and practice would be a major reason to, to change practice. But Clinicians might have other reasons like improving local access to, to services that they think are really important to their community, people's perception of the cost effectiveness of service delivery, an imbalance between supply and demand, as in they might have this falls prevention class that has a massive waiting list and, and they can never get through that waiting list. So there are a lot of reasons that that people want to change practice that might not be the same reasons that researchers or academics want to change practice so it's really important to consider that things might work better if if it's driven from the ground up rather than the top down yep that ticks all of my biases there and it it makes complete sense more of the what are the intrinsic motivators rather than the extrinsic ones and and having that more collaborative approach with each organization. So wanted to dive into a bit of that implementation science. So we've been talking about a few of these factors and wanted to open up, how can we nudge that behavior change amongst clinicians to update their practice? So the first one I'm hearing is ask them for their reasons to change, but um, yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and ask them, you know, what areas of practice that they think should change rather than the areas of practice that I think should change, for example. So I think when a lot of people think about changing practice and, and implementing change, our mind jumps straight to education. Um, you know, it's often getting people into a, a workshop or, um, you know, you mentioned before sort of an external course or something like that. And, you know, that's great when there's a knowledge gap, but for a lot of, you know, what we term the evidence to practice gaps in healthcare, it's not so much an issue of a knowledge gap. You know, most clinicians are actually fairly on top of the evidence that's coming out. I mean, particularly people who have sort of recently graduated. And so we need to think a little bit more nuanced about how change actually happens. So behaviour change basically doesn't just, you know, eventuate from a, a, a knowledge change as well. And then I guess we also need to think about at what level of, of a very complex system that is healthcare that we're trying to seek that change. Are we looking at individual behaviour change by individual clinicians? Or are we looking at broader organisational change? So, you know, when, when we're thinking about either of these things, and, and we talked about this uh, just earlier, is around practice change and policy change is, is context dependent and very contingent upon the various barriers and enablers that, that are at play. So if we're, say, seeking individual behaviour change, and as I mentioned before, it might not be a knowledge gap issue, we, we might need to consider how the desired behaviour can be normalised. So how to make that the sort of norm within, within a practice or within an organisation peer influence uh, becomes such a big thing. You know, we, we were just talking about the effect of clinical leaders on, on how, you know, you can get changes in practice from these kind of opinion leaders and knowledge brokers and uh, clinical champions. And then I, I guess also thinking about individual motivation. So what, what motivates people? There are some people who are business savvy and are interested in, in income. And so if you can try and promote practice change based on that for those people that might work very well other people are motivated by just achieving certain patient outcomes other people are motivated by being at the top of their game and, and being a skillful clinician and so you know looking at what what actually motivates people to to change their behavior so you know that would cover a few different sort of approaches you could take at the individual level and again, that would depend on what the barriers are to practice change. But then I guess when you're thinking about broader organisational changes, so looking at, you know, a large hospital or even a big clinic, you know, we want to more, look more on change management um, style techniques. So, you know, you want to get staff buy-in. You want to make sure that the desired change is actually compatible and fits with existing workflows so, you know, maybe your, your wait list to get into the clinic works a certain way and changing the number of sessions that you see a patient for will impact on that wait list. And so you need to think about what are the implications of, of that change on, you know, the kind of standard practice that already happens within an organisation. The other way of looking at this is from a, like a behavioural economics sort of perspective and so this is the the kind of area of research that you know Daniel Kahneman and, and that sort of crew of um, psychologists and, and economists who've been working on on nudging so looking at sort of subtle ways to overcome the cognitive biases that you know all humans have that I have that you have that everyone in your audience has and you know to try and overcome those you know like we're as humans, we're oversensitive to negative outcomes as compared to positive outcomes. I think it's, you know, almost double, you know, we feel almost twice as bad for losing something than we do feel as good for winning something. So, you know, trying to find ways of overcoming that 
And then our group looks, looks at healthcare from a complex complexity science perspective. So we look at the health system as a complex adaptive system and, and look for feedback loops within a system, perturbations to the system. So external things that come in and disrupt. A big example is of course, COVID-19 basically halted elective surgery across Australia for a few months. And so, you know, that is a very sort of broad system impact and, and it's not a simple task to go back to performing those elective surgeries and clearing that backlog of patients that you have. And, you know, within the complexity science literature, we also think about different, I guess, statistical distribution. So, you know, your audience might be familiar with the sort of normal distribution. You've got, you know, the, the mean and all the people in the middle and then, you know, certain standard deviations out, you sort of tail off in terms of your risk or likelihood of a, of a certain outcome. But for complex systems, sometimes those distributions are what are called long tail distributions. So you can get these exponential effects. So again, COVID's a perfect example. You know, they, they talk a lot about the, the R naught or the R zero, the, the infection rate for COVID. And if that's above one, then you get a exponential growth in COVID until the entire population is infected, basically. And that happens over an incredibly short time period. You know, we, we've seen that with local outbreaks here, but I suppose there's even more stark examples overseas where you can go from, you know, 10 infections one day and then three weeks later, you're getting thousands of infections every day because the, the distribution is skewed towards exponential growth. That, sorry, that was, that was a little bit of a rant about complexity science, but we, we try to incorporate those considerations within health systems, how to improve health systems and, and how to translate research into practice. That's so fascinating, combining so many different areas of science in, in the healthcare setting. I'm curious as to some examples of how that might play out just to contextualize it into that, that healthcare world. So how would certain factors perhaps exponentially change the, the entire system? So you mentioned COVID-19, would there be some others in, in settings that you've looked at? Oh, you're putting me on the spot now. So, <laughs> so uh, trying to think of an example here in terms of exponential growth or, or would you be happy with an example on sort of any of the broader complex systems dynamics? Yeah, any, any of the broader ones, it's difficult to, to explain complex systems theory. It's, it's almost like another language. Um, and I, I feel like a lot of our university education is very much more of that linear approach, cause and effect. So any of the concepts when it comes to complex uh, science, complex systems theory? Yeah, well, I, I can give an example. It's not actually some work that I've been directly involved with, but uh, some of my colleagues at the at the Institute, the Australian Institute for Health Innovation, have worked on a lot of network theory, which is, you know, sort of a, I suppose, almost like a sub-discipline of complexity science, or perhaps, you know, it's a separate discipline in itself, but it, it certainly fits within a, a complex systems paradigm. And they've sort of looked at the exponential growth of social networks between clinicians when implementing uh, genetics and genomics care in Australia. So for example, you know, a few years ago, genomic medicine was sort of in its junior years, you know, it's, it's really, it's something quite new. And, you know, there's a lot of people who think that it's gonna be a, you know, the next sort of revolution in, in healthcare, you know, genetic testing and genomic testing and, so at the beginning of their project, they did a social network analysis of clinicians as part of a, a genetic network of, of practitioners who were, I suppose, at the forefront of introducing these sort of tests and treatment into, into practice. And over a very short number of years, they continued to track that network and those relationships. And 
really just saw an explosion in the density of relationships between different agents who, who were working in that area, but also the, the number of agents themselves who were working in that area. So what I mean by agents is, is probably better described as clinicians. So the people who are um, providing genetic sort of medicine. And I guess what they were able to do is, is show visually quite an exponential growth in the connections between these clinicians. And that was sort of a relationship-based analysis that looked at, you know, people who were collaborating with each other or working together or, you know, sort of referring to each other. And so that's really an example of how a revolution in healthcare is not linear. It is quite explosive. And we're going to be seeing a lot of changes in the way that we practice particularly in that space, in, in, in genomics, because we now have this sort of huge network or I, I suppose it could be described as a community of practice who, who are sort of pushing the boundaries of, of this way of, you know, doing medicine. Yeah, it's super fascinating. It's, it's like we were talking about the uh, knowledge brokers, the clinical champions, opinion leaders. It's like how our social environment can influence change. And that's an example on steroids where now there's an entire community that's bringing about this change. And as more people do it, it's becoming normalized. And even then I I wonder if it's that there's less barriers to entry for that. So I can see some parallels if if I was to to summarize some of the, the ways that we can update practice amongst our colleagues. It's more of that, perhaps that experiential learning, more of the gaps in practice, not so much knowledge gaps and it's how we can contextualize the behavior change the clinical practice change within everyone's organization so an example that i can give is there is a push towards longer consultation times in order to be a bit more person-centered in order to have that extra time for rapport building and trust building and going into some exposure therapy especially when someone has had a chronic pain for 10 years having them in a 15-minute consult might not be as helpful However, in certain contexts, that's, that's the norm and there is no ability to change consultation times. So just contextualizing the behavior change into the, the system in, in, in that organization, in that clinic, and then asking people within that clinic what they think they need to change rather than going top down. Would that be a fair summary? Have I missed any, anything? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a fair summary. And you know, just, just to add to that in terms of bringing that network dynamics into the system, I think the hardest thing is, would be to be a clinician who is isolated, so someone who, who doesn't have a community of practice around them or people they can sort of consult with or work with or learn from. And, you know, some of the network analysis that, that we do in the Institute really emphasises that, that, you know, you, you get a lot more change and a lot more improvement when you have close ties between um, people and, and people can learn from each other. Mate, that's awesome. And we'll be looking at doing that in the Knowledge Exchange Facebook group and with other events that we're going to hold. So right now you're changing my practice and my perspective. So I'm, I'm learning a lot. And I wanted to, to go now into a, perhaps a controversial topic when it comes to over-medicalization. What are some of the, the issues in that field we, we briefly touched on it. So there's the the use of treatments that perhaps have more risk and harm than benefits and more costs. What are some of those uh, examples when it comes to? It's it's hard with our allied health because we, we don't have a lot of, I suppose, hard evidence against certain ways of practicing. Often what we do have is we have a lot of evidence for a certain model of care or way of practicing, and we may have very little evidence for another way of of practicing, but sometimes people are reluctant to practice in a new or different way because, you know, there's very little evidence to say what they're currently doing is, is, say, harmful, whereas in a lot of the other professions and, and probably specifically medicine, it, it can be a little bit more clear cut around what you should and shouldn't be doing. 
So I might jump back to some surgical examples. So for example, knee arthroscopy for meniscal tears, particularly people without sort of mechanical symptoms. People are ending up down this treatment pathway without having trialled you know, more conservative management. So basically strengthening exercises. But there really isn't any convincing evidence that arthroscopic surgery produces you know, better outcomes than exercise and, and strengthening in terms of pain relief. And this is sort of supported by choosing wisely and it's, it's part of one of their campaigns. And the reason I bring this one up is because I suppose, you know, the risks of harm from even quite, you know, a simple surgery like a knee arthroscopy, you can still get infections and you can still get problems. And it, it's still, you know, fairly expensive treatment compared to, you know, engaging in a, an exercise program with an exercise physiologist instead, for example, which, you know, is far cheaper far less likely to result in any harm, for example, and seems to be just as effective. There's lots of nuance with other forms of, of treatments, but we have a lot more evidence when it comes to the surgical interventions and also imaging we were talking about previously. So where there's unwarranted imaging for non-specific low back pain, and that's still, still an issue. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the big issues with that is that it, you know, not only is it quite expensive to, to get unnecessary uh, radiological imaging done, but it does sort of bring people down this narrative of, you know, mechanical problems with their body and, you know, sends them down a, a more medicalized pathway when perhaps they would have been better off receiving you know, some education around pain management and functional improvements to their, their life rather than trying to, you know, in inverted commas, cure what may not be an existing pathology. There's a lot of claims as well when it comes to allied health services that some perhaps inherently might lead patients, people to believing in these pathoanatomical reasons and hence the value of the narrative. I'm, I'm curious as to your opinion when it comes to say passive therapies, however, we'll, we'll define what a passive therapy is. What are your thoughts on where maybe there could be some over-medicalization, over-servicing, um, over-treatment when it comes to say chronic pain? I think we're sort of delving close to the concept of value-based care here and I, I, I think you know it is something that that you're probably going to ask me about after but I might jump straight to it here because I think it's quite relevant to what we're talking about so when we think about passive modalities and passive treatments delivered by allied health professionals you really need to think about the delivery of those services from the perspective of opportunity costs. So the idea that every unit of resource, so every, every moment of time and effort and dollars that people are sort of paying towards receiving a service from you as a clinician is the same amount of resources that then cannot be used to deliver an alternative treatment for either the same patient or if you're thinking about things at the population level for another patient that may potentially be more effective. So there's a lot of people I speak to who are involved in delivering both active and, and passive therapies and they talk about you know, often the, the short-term pain relief and short-term benefits that patients can get from say, manual therapies as sort of a, a way of setting them up for a longer-term program of, of more active treatment. And something that I always mention when I'm talking to, to people about, about that idea of practice is that you every time you deliver a passive therapy that may not be as effective as an active therapy, you 
have incurred an opportunity cost. And so it's, it's not a binary, you should be doing one thing or another, but you need to consider that everything you're doing as a clinician is based on a, a finite amount of time with that patient or a finite amount of, for example, government funding, if you've got your chronic disease management plan with only you know, five visits or whatever it is. So that needs to be in the forefront of our mind when we're, I'm reluctant to use the word over-servicing, but you know, when, when we're delivering services that are on a murky evidence base. And I'm totally agreeing with your stance here about trying to deliver as, as effective and efficient as possible in terms of our services, number of services, our number of consults. My, my question, the one that comes to mind would be, if we're looking at it in the, the short term, maybe there might be some benefit in the longer term and they wouldn't be yet ready for the longer term solutions. So they wouldn't be ready for a longer term lifestyle uh, management or longer term uh, self-management. And there might be some other barriers there. And maybe that comes back into our previous conversation where we would need to find out the enablers and the barriers for say an individual clinician in, in their clinical context why is it so difficult to apply some of these high value care where there is less time needed, perhaps less uh, clinical appointments, less money spent by five patients and clients, and there's better longer term solutions. So, so we probably need to look at the barriers and enablers in each context. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Look, again, it it comes back to a, a judgment call that, you know, we all have to make as clinicians and, and that is how much you know, time and resource do we dedicate to, to what you know, different part of care. So, you know, you mentioned the, you might need to sort of get a patient on board before going down the direction of a sort of longer term lifestyle sort of modification treatment program or model of care. Um, and, and I mean, that's a trade-off you make. So you, you, may, you may decide that you, want to or need to deliver some passive therapies for the first one or two sessions um, to to get that patient on board or to develop that relationship with with the patient where you you might be talking about their lifestyle and and sort of barriers to to changes that might then give you enough information to be able to help them with more active therapies down the track so you know, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but again, the time that you have spent doing that is is time lost. And so we do really need to consider these sort of choices at the margin where every amount of effort or resource that we, you know, deliver in, in one area, we want to maximise the benefit from that while reducing the cost from not doing something else that we know would have been beneficial. That comes down to many factors in terms of the, the clinic, the environment, the, the, the clinician and, and the patient uh, relationship, what the clinician thinks is high value, what the patient thinks is high value. But these are the questions that govern. These are the principles, the, the question of how much time and resource and money effort should we dedicate and if there is a way to perhaps focus on the outcome instead of the number of services and focus on getting that outcome as efficiently effectively and as permanently or as long term in terms of a long-term solution maybe that could should be our first point of call rather than going back into perhaps route learning and and going more into what our environment is enabling us to do what our previous experiences are, are enabling us to do what our colleagues perhaps are are doing so that's perhaps one of the barriers to implementation of of a behavior change for for say exercise and long-term lifestyle change yeah and and when we're thinking about you know value-based healthcare value is subjective so what one patient wants is not the same thing that another patient wants and either of those wants might not be the same thing that a clinician would sort of advocate on behalf of their patient as well. So we do, we do need to sort of weight 
what people are seeking when they're seeking healthcare. And that might not always be obvious or, or sort of explicit. It might be sort of more implicit. So somebody comes to a, a physio or an EP or a chiro and they, they want to improve the issue that has brought them there. So whether that be pain, whether that be some sort of you know, functional problem, whether it be a, a specific injury and sort of rehabilitating for a sport, but their short-term sort of request might be for passive therapies because that's what they've experienced before. You know, they want to get ultrasound on their sprained ankle because they have been told that it improves the healing process or something like that. And we as clinicians need to think about those two sort of short-term and long-term goals from the patient where they don't align that's where we have a role in education and in I guess pulling out the explicit from the implicit so you know somebody has has come to see you as a clinician because they want to get better and even if they're asking for something that might not be the most effective way to get them better we need to be the, I guess, the negotiator and the, the coach who, who coaches them through that and hopefully achieves their goal in the most sort of effective and efficient way possible. Mate, you've ticked all my biases and, and this is really interesting to hear how we can change clinical behaviour, so how we can change practice, how we can update and inspire perhaps those around us. The importance of the community is super important when it comes to trying to implement some of these changes because it's not so much a, a knowledge gap. It's not that we don't know what the guidelines are. It's more how do we then apply it in each specific setting. And I enjoyed this conversation and, and it was really good to actually get a definition in terms of um, the opportunity cost. So what is high value care? If we can reduce that time, money and effort and look at more of the long-term solution. And even then less of that medicalized solution, less of the pathanatomical explanations and narrative and more focusing on, on function when, when we're looking at things like chronic pain, then it will be so much more helpful for not only individual patients, but for healthcare in general. Would, would there be anything else to, to add to that, Mitch, uh, respecting your time? We'll finish it off here. Look, I, I think that's a fair summary. Yeah, I don't think there's there's much more to add there apart from, I, I suppose there's, a, there's another thing to consider with value-based healthcare and looking at, are we looking at the individual or the population as well? Because value can be derived for individuals, but value can also be derived for populations. And, you know, if we're working in the primary and community uh, healthcare space, it can be very tempting to look at the individual in front of you but you also need to think about what your impact is on the health system at a population level as well. And that can require quite a shift in, in thinking from clinicians. And it was certainly something that I struggled with as a clinician as well. What are the implications of the interventions? What are the patients gonna leave with and how would that affect maybe all these socio-cultural beliefs surrounding pain? perhaps some of the ethical questions that deserve another podcast in itself. So Mitch, I'll, I'll let you go, but before you go, if the audience wants to reach out and, and read your work and contact you, where can they find you? Yeah. So look, if you look me up on the Macquarie university website, that's Mitchell Sarkis, you know, just Google it should be the, uh, the first thing that pops up. I've also got Twitter. So at Mitchell Sarkis, as well as LinkedIn and ResearchGate. So simple Google search shouldn't be too hard to get in touch. Um, we are actually advertising for funded PhD student positions within the Institute. So there are, are a number of interesting projects that potential PhDs could join. But, you know, we're also interested in, in hearing people's ideas on, on projects. So please get in touch if you're interested in doing higher degree research, PhD or master's. Uh, we can have a chat about potential supervision. Amazing. And, and this research is 
to bring about actual change, which is super exciting. So hopefully there's one listener out there that is, has been inspired by your story and your work. And I really appreciate your time, Mitch. I've, I've learned a lot and I'm sure the audience has as well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Daniel. And, and thank you to your audience for listening.